Welcome to the Health Enthusiasm Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Health Enthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today, we have a full panel. We have our American in Paris, who's now actually in Barcelona, medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hello, everyone. From London, customer experience and research expert, Kupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And we also have from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Suina. Hello there. So this means that we are missing Aline Noiset, our digital health connector. She's traveling in San Francisco right now. She couldn't make it. And as per habit, what we do is when we're missing somebody from our panel, we invite a guest to the show. Now, before I introduce the guest, if you want to be part of the show as well, you can go to the website, healththusiasm.com and reach out to me. We do already have a long list of interested people, but we are happy to hear from your interest as well. I have to say there are, there are three requirements that you need to meet if you want to be part of this show. First of all, you need to have some health enthusiasm yourself, of course. It would be great if you have some expertise in a specific field, but most of all, we are looking for people that are lovable. I said lovable, not laughable, just to be sure. And our next guest certainly is lovable, I have to say. He is a serial intra and entrepreneur. He was an executive in pharma. He's a venture builder, a speaker, a board advisor, and all of that with a focus in digital health. Personal anecdote, he was also the very first person to take a selfie with me holding my book up in his hands to share on social media. At the time, it was a, a rather unusual experience to me, but he did help me sell probably 100 more books, I believe. You may know him as the podcast host of the DTX podcast, an amazing podcast on digital therapeutics, or as the co-founder and COO of Your Coach Health. Welcome to the show, Eugene Burakovich. Wow, with that with that intro, uh, super honored to be here, Christoph. And I hope I'm just not just lovable, but laughable too. I do enjoy humor. <laughs> You're welcome to do so. So together, we will and we want to amplify the health enthusiasm that we see in articles and new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you're new to the show, you might wonder what health enthusiasm is all about. Well, health enthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. So tell me, Mo, what enthusiasm did you witness in the past months? My enthusiasm today is uh, not only hopeful, but also a testament to how fast things in the scientific world can evolve uh, from skepticism to being scientifically proven. And it's also a shout out to all those who challenge the status quo, like we all do, and who remain cautious and open-minded enough to keep believing in the motto, absence of proof isn't always proof of absence. As a brand experience challenger and behavioral geek, I've had numerous exchanges with clients on how purposeful brands and organizations are able to unlock so much more healthy and long-term value for all stakeholders. And today, with my enthusiasm, I'm proud to share a news that takes that principle up a notch. A pretty recent study, it's only a year old, finds that people with higher levels of purpose may have a lower risk of death from any cause, and that this association is also applicable across race, ethnicity, and gender. And that's also a study that suggests that this association is higher and stronger, ladies, among women <laughs> and than it is among men, but there's no significant difference by race or ethnicity. So once again, women are the stronger gender. Growing research indicates that one's purpose, uh, the extent to which someone perceives a sense of direction and goals in life, may be linked to health protective benefits such as better physical functioning and lower risk of cardiovascular disease or cognitive decline. It was the team at Boston University School of Health that included over 13,000 people in this study to come to this result. And uh, they use a widely used tool that measures different aspects of well-being. But there's also some interesting facts that they examined mortality risk over an eight-year period, eight period. And they started from 2006 and they continued for a, a very long period there. Uh, now, what is interesting is that how remarkable is the shift in risk of death? Well, people who have less 
sense of purpose, they have a 15.2% mortality risk compared to people with the highest level of purpose have the lowest risk, 15.2. And those with the lowest sense of purpose have the highest risk, which is 36.5% mortality risk. That's factor 2.4, by the way. They also gathered data on a higher sense of purpose. And what's interesting is that the stronger observed purpose mortality association in women may be attributable to gender difference in the way of using healthcare services. It seems that self-care among women has a lower threshold. So they would be with a higher sense of purpose. Women are more willing to use healthcare services, and that might be interesting for you, Eugene, than men. So that's men tend to underuse the necessary healthcare services due to the social norm. So that's really interesting. So I love the fact that we were able to start from a generic principle like purpose and trickle it down to how it impacts such factors like health, emotion, psychology, and behavior, in this case, the use of healthcare services. My health enthusiasm for today. Yeah, interesting. And maybe nice to know is that I'm finishing my second book now, and we'll talk, it'll be a lot about aspirations. So aspiration as the main driver to become healthy and happy. And one of those aspirations is actually purpose. Uh, I saw that article as well. It will be referenced to in the book as well. Krupa, I see you nodding. I think this is definitely up your sleeve as well. But what is your health enthusiasm um, this month? Thanks, Christoph. Um, so the first health enthusiasm that I would like to share is related to helping female t uh, tennis players perform at their very best. So you may know of Wimbledon. For those who don't, it's the greatest tennis championship exists, the greatest Grand Slam that there is. And within the tournament, it's known for its all white dress code, which all players have to adhere to. What has happened over the years is that it has led to female players, women players, having some anxiety around what to wear during the time of the tournament if they are menstruating. It's all white dress code, so they haven't been able to, to wear anything darker. And as a result, they're more worried about the fact that they may have a leak or something may show than actually being focused on their performance and play. And actually, this should be the least of their worries around what they're wearing, because ultimately what they're there for is their tennis and their skill. Anyway, after some calls from players, former legends, and protests that took place last year, the dress code has been relaxed. And it was announced that last week, women will be able to wear different colour shorts during the tournament. And that will come into place from 2023. It's such a relief uh, that this is taking place. So thank you um, to all those who campaigned for this change. Um, my second health enthusiasm is actually in relation to the launch or the development, sorry, I should say, of a female crash dummy. Now, since the 1970s, crash tests sorry, crash dummies for car safety trials have typically been based on the average male build and height. However, women are more likely to be prone to injuries and accidents and consequently are three times more likely to have whiplash from what's known as rear impact collisions. Anyway, a uh, team of Swedish engineers has just developed the first female dummy and that's based on the average woman and currently there's no legal requirement that exists for car safety tests to when they're involved uh, in a rear impact collision to be carried out on anything other than the average male body now this is amazing what's happening is that car companies are already using them in their own safety tests Some engineers are also starting to create more diverse dummies that represent babies, elderly people, and also some people who may have uh, disabilities. It's an amazing move forward. I cannot believe that this has never been in place, but let's hope that change is about to come upon us. Lovely. I expected those ones, actually, <laughs> because I saw them passing by as well. By the way, Krupa, did you know in one of the previous um, podcasts that we um, that we were on, you mentioned that Google, uh, YouTube at a certain time had a, uh, introduced a label to, to showcase that the information provided by health professionals or institutions were actually good information. Remember that discussion? Well, actually, they've expanded that and they are now inviting 
US-based for now, health creators to apply for this program as well, to have that same label. So it goes beyond the institutions. I remember in the last discussion, we talked about it, whether it is something or nothing or everything. And we said, maybe it's something or maybe even it's nothing because it's too small of, a, of an impact. But right now they're expanding this certification so that people that actually provide valuable information on YouTube will also have this logo, the certification where you can just label, where you can see that the information provided is, is actually a good one. Eugene, I'm shifting to you. You know, so before we pressed the record button, we were talking about losing hair, you know, midlife crises. And while I heard about this project last year, it started coming up in the last couple of weeks. And just I think last week, I saw a little bit of an article. I don't know if you guys have heard Brian Johnson a while back, he sold his company to part of the PayPal mafia, right? So for 800 million, and he's been running this project since 2021, Project Blueprint, right? And the goal there was for him to reduce his epi- epigenetic age, which, you know, measuring 70 different organs, you know, very kind of strict, you know, or let's call it consistent, I'll put it in a positive term, consistent daily routines. And he just successfully uh, measured the uh, epigenetic age. I think he reduced it, but something like five point something, 5.1 years, right? So from 47 to 42 and a half. And I think, you know, as we were discussing this earlier, you know, the question to me always about this whole enthusiasm, I think we're all, you know, longevity and reducing your epigenetic age. I still feel like I'm 12 in my heart, hence the laughable uh, sometimes and, and the joking. But I think some of the thoughts that I had when reading the actual article about this is, you know, well, can everybody, you know, an average person out there, can they track all these, uh, you know, organs? Can you stick to the, you know, to the consistent diet? Can you stick to the consistent routines? And so the question becomes a bit kind of looking forward is how do you democratize what Brian has done? So that's my enthusiasm for the week. Super interesting. Thank you very much for uh, for this one. Before going to um, to Aditi, maybe from my side, I had a uh, nice one as well. Is that Mitsubishi Electric? They announced that they'll be launching in February 2023 an air conditioning that can sense the emotion or the mood of the people in the rooms. And so, based on that, they will adjust the settings of their air conditioning. So whether somebody's feeling relaxed, tense, or distracted, the technology will then actually adapt according to it to make you feel better. It works in an area of about six meters. And if there's multiple people in the room, it will adjust according to the average vibe. I had to laugh when I saw this. <laughs> because indeed, I mean, um, if there's a, I mean, something sexy going on or if there's a fight going on, um, how will the air conditioning react, of course? So that is a a very interesting one. Eugenie wanted to jump in, I see. Yeah, on the heels of HLTH or health that took place in Vegas, I can see the casinos being the first purchasers of these air conditioners. Really? To keep the moods up and motions. Right, I mean, it's it's amazing, yeah. And I mean, there's so many there's so many ways of uh, of implementing it. Um, actually, I mean, I've read somewhere an article that this emotion detection market is expected to reach. Listen to this: 103 billion dollars by 2030. And there's a lot of things that you can do with it, right? It's a, it's, it's based on emotion based decision making. You can enable actions or reaction based on, you know, people's emotions. You can facilitate communication. So I mean, Amazon's Halo Band is actually doing that. It analyzes your tone of voice and then actually gives you feedback on how you sound to others. But you can see this in fields, you know, medicine, advertisement, virtual reality, casinos, probably the gaming in general, education. So a, a very, very amazing evolution that probably will be huge to come. Aditi, tell me. What did you uh, see in recent? Uh... Well, the obvious one that I always think about is, right, so Amazon finally opened up their Amazon clinic. They're selling it as a virtual health start storefront. Uh, so it's like the first step in what they're probably going to try and create for all of their Amazon healthcare. I find it interesting mainly because what they're selling and what they're providing is exactly what direct-to-consumer telehealth companies were doing 10 years ago. But, and so they're doing very basic uh, treatments, but they're going to be able to provide it for a lot of people. 
we'll see how that goes. It's going to be a couple of steps forward. But the other thing I wanted to bring up aside from that is, you know, I, I was recently at Health. I know Eugene was too. But what was really great and what I saw were there are quite a few companies that are now working on digital innovations for end of life care, realizing that the way that we deal with hospice and the way that people die, there has to be a lot of dignity to it. And it just isn't done in a way that patients and their families feel like they have a lot of choice and a lot of information. And so there's been a huge amount of investment in it. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of that some of that come through because I think one of the, my favorite books that I ever read was called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. If you haven't read it, you should absolutely read it. It really changed the way that I thought about end-of-life care and even how I counseled my patients when I knew that they were end-of-life. And so I'm really interested to see how that all comes through. Yeah, lovely, um, lovely example. I mean, I saw it passing by as well. And there's a lot of discussions on all these big techs entering in the, in, in, in the space. I mean, I've even tried to write a newsletter about it, but it was so much happening that I, I wanted to sit this one out again because um, there's, there's so much to write and to think about uh, of, of where this is actually going, I guess. Thank you for these health enthusiasms. And it is a health enthusiasm world indeed. So many positive changes are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I really enjoy watching these changes unfold. I even analyze them and try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I write about these in a newsletter called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healthenthusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Health Enthusiasm podcast, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this week's newsletter is Care Tuning. Let's get into it. So health enthusiasm is the result from a human aspiration to become better, healthier, or even happier. And it makes people look for products, services, and experiences that helps them transform themselves. So as a result, many companies that previously had little to no affinity with health and self-care, they are now embarking on a journey that puts health at the core of their customer strategy. Healthism is this big societal and economical shift that is impacting the world massively. And it got accelerated during COVID because the healthcare system wasn't able to function as we wanted to or as we needed, in fact. Health systems were inaccessible. Shortage of health workers was very present. The empathy of government, the empathy for governmental COVID measures was quickly wearing out. And we became aware of the limitations of sick care. But at the same time, outside of healthcare, we saw how people were more and more empowered in industries like banking, travels, and retail. They could do things themselves. And so people now, they also look to take their health into their own hands. It wasn't even surprising when I read the uh, Ipsos uh, research back in 2020 that found that 78% of people wanted to have more control of their health and self-care. And definitely with healthcare, the healthcare system, the hospitals being shaken up, self-care took an even more solid stance in areas that could impact our physical and our mental health, of course. And it was starting to claim its place alongside healthcare. After all, 99% of caring about our health happens outside of healthcare anyway. And that's not me saying that, that's the WHO. Self-care is not just the prevention of diseases, but it's part of the, if you will, the entire continuum of health management. And so in the next two to five years, I expect that we will see self-care being or solidifying, if you will, its position alongside healthcare. Uh, while perhaps today we self-care and, and healthcare might be two opposing, sometimes even non-communicating forces, they will turn up to be the yin and yang of health management. And for that, these different types of care will need to be tuned to one another. And what we see is we see a lot of initiatives already rising today from both sides that actually showcase that, you know, this care tuning will happen. I'll give you three, just um, a big short example. On the one hand side, we have the, um, the merging between wellness and medicine. What we see is that retreats, but also fitness centers that they are increasingly including medical practices in their approach. We have, of course, the popularity of lifestyle medicine. And if you're, if you're not 
aware of that or if you're not uh, too familiar with it, lifestyle medicine is actually the conviction that lifestyle interventions can treat possibly even reverse chronic condition, conditions. And there's an increasing amount of evidence-based uh, studies that help or support lifestyle medicine as well. But perhaps one of the most important or most amazing examples, I would say, is the use of health and wellness coaches in healthcare institutions and healthcare systems. I'll give you two examples in that space. It's uh, one, one comes from the, the Mayo Clinic in, um, the Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota. Uh, who actually launched a wellness coach training program to train health coaches, wellness coordinators, physicians, yoga instructors, uh, dietitians, exercise specialists even, to train them on the soft side of medicine. And so today, at least the purpose, that's the purpose, these health and wellness coaches will have to work or will start working together with, you know, the doctors in the hospital or even the nutritionists. The purpose is to have a more impactful connection uh, with the patient. So again, here we see this tuning of care between self-care and, and healthcare by the use of health and wellness coaches. And then in the UK, very interesting as well, the, um, the National Health Service has established a new vision on the future where also they believe that health and wellness coaches are central. They call it the Personalized Care Initiative. And it's actually a um, all-age, whole-population approach that supports the entire population and becoming as healthy, as happy as possible, regardless of whether people are sick or not. So really health enthusiasm and definitely a way of tuning between care and self-care. And so if we do this right, we can really have, by tuning this, this properly, we can really have this yin and yang of health management, as I mentioned early, earlier. But what we will need is perhaps, and that's maybe my belief, that's a question to the, to the panel perhaps as well, is that I believe that the healthcare industry might have to be a little bit more open to uh, practices like uh, self-care. Uh, and maybe that would be the biggest channels in tuning care, as I mentioned earlier. But I believe it's worth, worth it because tuning care will be um, definitely essential for every person, every person who wants to be healthy and happy, regardless of whether they are uh, sick or not. So tuning care is how I see health and self-care uh, developing. They will need to talk to each other a little bit more. And let me just go straight to our medical expert in the panel and see what she um, believes and thinks of this um, thoughts. Sure. So, you know, there's not much to disagree on here. I think that when the entire term, when it came out on self-care, it was interesting, and you mentioned it, is that people assumed it was separate from their health, but it's not, right? When people talk about self-care, they're really talking about making themselves feel, making themselves feel better. It's very much linked to mental health. A lot of the exercises are things that are good for your health, right? Whether it's exercise or massage or meditation, whatever it is, that's part of it. I will say that part of the barrier that existed to get that into the healthcare system as a whole was that there were a lot of practices claiming things without the evidence to back it up. And so when things like that happen, the entire healthcare ecosystem will push back because that's what we do. We want to make sure that it's safe and that when people are selling things, it's not snake oil. It's a real, actual, evidence-based treatment that people can use. Realizing that there are more of that in institute, uh, these uh, lifestyle, lifestyle medicine or wellness coaches, like you mentioned, that are being integrated into the like hospitals and clinics, there's still a lot of work to be done in the evidence-based, but it is better as a holistic approach. We're seeing a change in the culture of medicine in general. There is a patient-centric, what do patients want to do? How do we do that? So I think it's going to continue to grow. And so do you believe it is feasible for the medical staff to be also on top of, you know, everything that's happening in self-care or how do you see this evolving then? I think it'll work in together because there, it, it's impossible, right? So what we, what we say uh, broadly in medicine is, are you working at the top of your license? There are people who are better at the wellness portion, the coaching portion, than your physician. And so they should be doing that, and it should be a whole care collaboration. So a team-based approach for the patient's uh, best interests. The patients are going to be involved in it as well, right? And so I think that's really what we're seeing. Okay. 
Lovely. Cooper, I mentioned uh, the example from the NHS. You live in London. How do, how do you see things um, evolving there? It's, it's really interesting. I first started looking into health coaching out of interest and back in 2015. And what I realized here in the UK at that time, health coaches weren't recognized as a, an authoritative practitioner base to go to by the NHS. So even if you went and uh, became and uh, did some training on health, uh, health coaching, it'd be very hard for you to practice. You could practice here, but you weren't regulated. I think recently more and more bodies have popped up to protect health coaches, but they don't have the the certification essentially that uh, people look for, like a HPC qualification, for example. I do see them actually becoming more and more integrated into care, for sure. And we are now seeing them popping into NHS practices, which I'm really, really happy about. One of the things I would say on this is I, I, I think it's great. The only thing I would look back at is I, I think about the blue zones and think about where people are the most healthiest in the world and, and looking at the attributes. And if we look at the topic of self-care, it implies it's placed upon that individual. But actually, on if you look at the blue zones, community is is interlinked with that so it's it's also just making sure that you know as we talk about it more and we put it into practice it's not just on an individual they've got that community around them and really also thinking about what Mo was saying earlier it's your purpose as well what's your higher purpose and how does that link into it so I think there's there's a whole load more than just going to yoga, having a bath and, you know, going to meditation. It's just a more holistic approach, but it's really good. The two are now integrating together and the mind and body are not separate. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for bringing up that community uh, aspect. I already made some promotion for the next book by saying that purpose is one of the aspirations, but belonging to a community is also one. So uh, this is becoming a, a, a great advertisement for, for the new book that's coming up in a couple of months. Uh, so thank you for that. Eugene. I imagine you have a thing or two to say about health coaches. How do you look at the combination of um, healthcare and self-care and tuning those two cares against one another? Yeah, I've, I've been really trying not to unmute myself and keep order, right? Because I can talk for hours about this, but I'm probably going to try to keep this succinct. So first of all, I'll actually start with the whole concept of self-care, right? There's a reason that on the airplane, they tell you, put your mask on first, right? Because if you can't take care of yourself, you cannot help others, right? And, and being part of whether you mentioned earlier, the community, you know, helping others in a clinical and non-clinical aspect, self-care is an important component of this. And where the intersection of self-care, health coaching specifically, you know, before we get to all of this is around, let's call it waking up that intrinsic motivation, right? Us as human beings, we all need to know what we need. We all know what we need to do. It's just a matter of how do we as individuals get there and coaches are trained and we kind of describe it. I mean, honestly, you know, if I rewind back before Marina, my wife started the company, became a health coach after going through the cancer journey herself, you know, she kind of says, you know, doctors gave her her life back, but health coaching allows her to live it in her own terms, right? And, you know, to uh, a little bit of to Krupa's point on, you know, we've been seeing quite a lot of activity, you know, in the NHS, but in US, and this is where we, you know, as, as your coach, we started officially in January 2020. In 2019, the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaching in US with the American Medical Association, and I'm paraphrasing this, but quote unquote announced a certified health coach as a non-clinical member of a, of a healthcare team. And there are now level three, there are still level three test CPT codes, but looks like the national board is applying for those reimbursements in February of next year. And the AMA will be doing the initial voting on those reimbursements in May. All that is to say that this is a real profession with real certifications. The national board now has over 110 accredited schools. This is undergraduate, graduate, and continuing education. The, we've counted, we're actually about to release our second health coaching industry report. We have counted close to 500 clinical studies in the last 20 years with about 70% of them in the last just six, seven years of benefits of health coaching. 
So it's here, it's working, and I think this is where that tie between the self-care and coaches waking up your intrinsic motivation. So I have a lot more to say, but I think I will pause here. No, it's super interesting, and there was a lot in there that I didn't even know. Maybe maybe a question for you, which I'm, I've, I've been thinking about quite a while, is that you see these um, early startups or even scale-ups in the meantime that started off with coaching, letting go of the coaching aspect. Uh, one of the, the most famous ones, I believe, is Noom. Um, they had a very core focus on, on health coaching, but they let go of it. Do, do you know why that is? That uh, Why did it go? Or? Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of funny that, you know, Marina was on the same panel as we're just getting rolling with Saiju. And, you know, kudos to the team, honestly, you know, bringing the company where it's at. But we never believe that Noom does real health coaching, right? And what we define as real health coaching is non-clinical psychotherapy. Again, these are kind of our terms. You know, Noom was using humans to do nudging for lack of a better term. We also don't believe in chat-only health coaching. We don't believe that that's health coaching because health coaching is a relationship model. Now, the second part to this, there's Noom and many others that did, and many of those were not true health coaching and and kind of our, our definition of it, A. And then B, if you think about US, which is where a lot of this started happening, and especially in the B2B world, as some of these companies that are going B2B, you know, large employers, health plans, and selling into it, very difficult to predict the demand. So they either overhire or underhire the health coaching. And in many cases, they overhired. Now, last piece on this is the ratios of coach to coachee in some of these companies go up to 600 to 1, which again, just think about that number, right? And again, just kind of proves the point that it's not really coaching and it's using humans to nudge people. So, uh, lovely. Nudging brings us to the human experts or the human experience experts. Mo, tell me something. Wow, this is really interesting. Uh, I think the core of that conversation, and thank you for bringing that up, Christophe, is how do we shift from therapy to care, to real care, right? And um, how do we not make it patient-centric? How do we not make it customer-centric? How do we make it life-centric? Because our organism and our lives is not organized in therapeutic domains or it does not have departments. Our body, our organs, it's all connected. So it does not collaborate. It does not coordinate. It cooperates. And if you have teams working around cooperate means that you're working on the same opus. You are working on the same thing. And I think the fact that it's been integrated as a non-clinical part of the, of, of the team is the way forward. It's an ecosystem. It's holistic. And I think we're going from, from siloed services to integrated services. And where we used to take, we were not able to manage the complexity of biology, right? And our answer to the complexity of biology is to organize it and to make it, and, and to make it complicated. And I love the way it's, you know, all working together, but I do agree that since it's so crucial and stakes are really high, that standard should be high. Right. I've seen too many people become coaches because something happened to them and they want to pay it forward. And I love that. But you need to be aware how dependent people are on your service. And I've had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I want to become a coach. And I say, think again. Right. Because if you're asking money for that, often hard earned money for people who are in situations where, you know, they have no perspective, you should be able to deliver on that. And I love the way Eugene says, you know, I, I think it requires standard, it requires professionalism, and it requires regulation so that we take the thing that is most crucial to people, which is health, really, really seriously, even if it's non-clinical. So love that. I think we're, we're just helping people to thrive. And uh, since there's so much at stake, we should take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, it needs to be clear on what you deliver or what you don't deliver. I mean, you can't have a promise uh, for sure. Yes. So thank you for this discussion on care tuning. Now let's move to the next segment of the Health Tuesdayism podcast. Is it something, nothing or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation, or evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinions about it. Do they find it something, nothing, or everything? So Krupa, 
what sparked your enthusiasm this month? This month for me, um, it's an article which I read in the BBC and it's all about lab-grown blood which has been put into humans in the world's first clinical trial. It's a collaboration between uh, the, between four institutions, the University of Bristol, Cambridge, Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation and Cambridge University's hospitals as well. So in the UK, we know that there is a shortage of blood. And here we rely on volunteers, healthy volunteers coming forward to donate blood on a monthly or um, three monthly basis. Now, we know that we have a shortage as well for certain groups, ethnic minority groups as well. And then there's also a shortage of certain blood type groups as well. So what the trial is focusing on is red blood cells. And the red blood cells are the ones that carry oxygen from the lungs to the rest of the body. And how this trial works is that usually in a normal donation, you'd have a pint of blood, you'd, you'd get around a pint of blood, which is about 470 mils. The magnetic beads in this case would fish out any flexible stem cells, which could become red blood cells. The stem cells are encouraged to grow in large numbers in the labs and then they're guided to become red blood cells. So this process takes around three weeks. And what they what it would do would initiate around half a million stem cells to produce around 50 billion red blood cells. However, once it's filtered down, it goes down to 15 red blood, 15 billion red blood cells, I should say, which then can be transplanted. So the trial's begun, which is amazing. And what will happen is healthy volunteers are given two donations of between five to 10 mils of blood, and they are at least four months apart. It's a randomised control trial. So there is get one donation of normal blood and one donation of lab-grown blood. What they want to see is how long would that blood last in the body? It's expected that red blood cells tend to last around 120 days before they need replacing. And what they have been looking at is actually, could the lab-grown blood cells last for longer? And therefore, we could need less frequent blood donations and also fewer blood donations as well. It's a trial. It's an RCT. It's amazing that they're um, going through this phase. And I thought it'd be really good to bring this to the panel for, for some discussion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it straight to Aditi. She's our medical expert. And I would love to hear your feedback, Aditi. Yeah, this is everything. You know, I looked up the study that you were talking about to see the type of cell lines they went through. And you're right, you know, they've tried other types but they wouldn't pr proliferate. And so this is working so far and they were able to do it in the lab the way you described it. And if this works, this would be an absolute game changer for the amount of blood. You know, for example, when we have a major trauma, we have to bring in a lot of blood. And the fact that at times it will deplete a lot of our stores in the hospital, having this type of blood available everywhere is going to be a huge game changer because it is really difficult to rely on human donation. A lot of people donate out of the goodness of their heart, but it's not an end of supply. So this is it's just an incredible feat of biochemistry also. So it's great. Thank you. Yes, it, it, yeah, here it is. It's the same thing. They they donate out of the goodness of their hearts. My husband donates his blood as well. However, Again, it's, it's all voluntary-based. Mo, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it's really wonderful, but I think it, it confronts us with the scarcity of biology. Whether it is in nature, whether, you know, we're, we're, we're getting stressed because the bees are not able to do the things. So I think how, how that domino kind of pushes us towards biologic scarcity. And uh, I think it's really hopeful. I think it's really hopeful. Now, for your information, I started up a, a non-for-profit, which is the Belgian National Organization of Regenerative Medicine. We are talking with the University of, of Ghent, and it's about tissue engineering. We're also thinking about that, you know, how will we grow organs? How will we, you know, grow blood? We're, we're for the most, so totally into that. And I think it's really, really hopeful. And I think it will open perspectives for patients that are, you know, that do not have opportunity or access. I really love that. I'm also fascinated. How does it work with the growth factors within the blood? You know, how, how, how will that uh, work uh, as far as that? Because blood is not 
just only red blood cells. There, there's a lot of it's an incredible mixture of a really interesting thing. And how will that contribute to health? So, love that. I think it's really there, but I think it confronts us with the scarcity of of biology. Yeah. Can I just add one thing for that? Because Mo, you brought up a point. You know, we it's not even just the goodness of our heart when we're people are donating blood. There's a lot of political statements that are made with who can donate blood, right? Because of the screening required, uh, screening for diseases, screening for the type of blood. And so this takes some of that away, which is probably for the best, but, or is it better to be able to actually confront these biases instead and get past them? Yeah, it is true that not everyone is eligible to donate blood. But um, yeah, I think from a behavioral point of view, you're better off engineering blood than waiting for biases to change. <laughs> so um, I think that's why this really, really hopeful. Thank you, Mo. Thank you, Azizi. Christoph? Yeah, I have to say this exceeds my um, intellectual capacity. I know I can try to understand computers, but I mean, if we're talking about biology, I'm not quite sure that I'll be able to understand it ever. But I think... I think it's Mo mentioned um, scarcity in biology. I did some research be- because of that article, and I came across a couple of a uh, couple of things. And I, I believe that somehow, and this even blows my mind even more. But somehow, I think if we think about how you know the popularity of sequencing genomes has has risen just because the cost of the genome dropped from a hundred million. Uh, only 20 years ago to about a couple of hundred euros today. I think that maybe we can expect the same thing happening here with, with this type of synthetic biology. What would need to happen probably is then we will need to drive the cost down and we'll need to increase the knowledge of people, certainly myself as well, uh, uh, for that matter. And I did some research, like, like really just simple. I went on Google and tried to, um, to, to look for stuff. And I think if you want to drive the cost down, it starts with, you know, being able to build cheap, portable, easy to use toolings. And actually, I mean, if you, if you look at it, you, there's already devices that you can buy that allows you to copy DNA molecules for about $500. And you can even manipulate it and manipulate that, that, that DNA um, for synthetic biology uh, purposes. I think on the website, you could even find this um, instruction manual to build it yourself. Uh, so we're getting there uh, and, and, and having more, uh, let's say, cheaper cheaper devices. But also from a from a knowledge point of view, just in trying to understand the impact of that, I, I, I did also some research and I came across a couple of things which which were completely I I wasn't aware that they they exist. But there's this thing called Odin, uh, O D I N. I'm not quite sure whether you've heard of it, but it's um it's like a Coursera, so an online course, uh, but specifically focus on DIY genetic engineering courses. It's pretty much amazing. Uh, what, what the website says is that we are making happen the fact that you know genetic engineering and consumer genetic design will be a big part of the future. And we want to make that happen by creating kits and tools and courses that allows anyone to make unique and usable organisms at home or in a lab anywhere. Of course, there's there's a lot to be said about um, you know regulations in that space. Then, but there again, I mean, I mean, it's it's just the beginning to make things more popular to make sure that the uh, the knowledge is spread. For six hundred dollars, you can have a course that includes all the materials and everything you need to know to program DNA. It's called the Advanced DNA Programming Course. And Odin is not the only one. There's also other ones like Brilliance that actually offer the same thing. Then I came across something which is called Cultivarium. It's a website that is actually some sort of, they call it, they call themselves the access to the genetic potential of the biosphere. What they do is they create some sort of open source tool for life scientists so that they can actually have access to novel microorganisms. And it's a platform and people share things on it so that, that we more quicker can learn from each other. It's an open source platform. And then finally, a word that I, that I wasn't aware of is called Skenius. It's a combination of the word scene. And maybe you need to pronounce it genius then, but it's com- it's a combination of the word scene, uh, so a local scene, and genius. And they call it, it's the community biolabs of the future, uh, the garages in which synthetic biohackers will continue to work outside of academia, actually. So yeah, I think it blows my mind. I, I, I looked up some articles. It even blows my mind even more. I don't understand most of it. But I think it might have the same um, evolution as, as the human genome and what we've seen happening in, in the DNA, uh, RNA space as well. 
Maybe as a final, a final word on this, I came across a company which is called Ginkgo Bioworks, and they have a tagline that is amazing. Uh, it says, biology is the most advanced manufacturing technology on the planet. And biology by design is the future. Um, so scarcity, Mo, I do agree right now, maybe, but uh, it seems like we're on a track to, um, to just produce biology when we need it. You are right. The cost was one of the big things that came up here. Currently, the cost of producing this is high. Obviously, it's in trials. If it is successful, would, would the cost uh, reduce as they find different ways of actually producing it? So, really interesting. Thank you. Eugene, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Is it something, nothing, or everything for you? So, to me, it's absolutely something. And the reason I, I anchor it into something is that it's still, you know, there's a need today, right? And, you know, it, it's funny, as I was gathering my thoughts on this segment, cost was a key component. So, let's put this, the, the validity, the scientific validation, and and the clinical trials to the side. But if we think back on, let's say, something like a genomic sequencing, right? I mean, the first genome sequence took something like almost $3 billion and 13 years. And now I can order my test for less than 200 bucks, right? So, you know, think about the lab-grown meat that some of us eat. You know, the first burger I think that was made was 330000 or something like that. Now, you know, almost equivalent, maybe a little bit more. So I think, you know, from that perspective, we as human beings are always, you know, it taking something from zero to one with higher costs and then continuously improvement is what we as humans do really well. So again, putting the scientific component of it, you know, at the end though, putting my capitalist hat on is what's the real cost of this today from a donation perspective, processing it, delivering it, and versus the, you know, let's call it the new steady state of, you know, red blood production will be in probably a decade plus. So definitely something amazing to hear, skepticism on scaling. Thank you for this discussion. It is clearly something, but now time for something else. In this health enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and consumer business. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into the wellness and healthcare space. And while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. We talked about this earlier in the podcast as well. But this brings the following question. What behavior Innovation or trend from one industry can be worthwhile to another industry. In other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? So this month, I'll take the um, inside out, outside in innovation or ID that I uh, that I'd like to have you discuss, and I'll, I'll be very brief in um, the introduction to it because I want to talk about designing for health and self care solutions today. We've seen in the design methodologies, we've seen a, a huge evolution, and my question is, where are we today in health and self care, and what is the next step? to be taken. Now to briefly give you a short update of where we're coming from and where we're heading, I think in the 1960s, there was something that is called participatory design, which was mainly about testings that were done by users at the end of a development. The purpose was to check the usability, first and foremost. Then in the 90s, we, we, we got a little bit more user-centric. It was also called user-centered design. And then what we did is we didn't wait until the end of the development, but we are already included users during the development process. And we wanted to know about their needs during that process to better build uh, solutions. But still, the purpose was to create a better user experience, meaning what experience you have in using a certain solution. Now, from the 2000s onwards, um, we had service design which was more focused on customer experience along the journey. It came along with the focus in business on customer experience as well. And the difference between user experience is that it was more of a holistic approach. It was not only the use that was co-developed, it was also taking into account the input from different other stakeholders. And it was looking at basically the entire journey. And so this was a, a radical shift. And then 
Recently, I think in the last 15 to 20 years, what we've seen is something which is called human-centered design. Because the previous ones, participatory design focused on, you know, usability, user-centered design focused on user experience or service design on customer experience as a whole, they were all pretty much focused on the solution not really too much on the human at the center of everything. And so human-centered design is much more of a mindset than actually a tool set, but it should help to better understand the complexity of human behaviors and actually be able to create better solutions that fit human factors as well as the entire context around it. Just for some knowledge uh, information, it's championed by the Nobel Prize laureate uh, Herbert Simon in '56 already. It was developed and taught by the Stanford University Design School. It is leveraged by design firm, my, one of my favorite firms actually, IDEO. And you can even find it on UNICEF websites where you can find a lot of resources on human-centered design as well. Again, the purpose is to humanize the process of designing to better understand the complexities of human behavior and to solve larger societal problems. So my question to the panel would be, where are we in healthcare with human-centered design? Are we still focusing on usability? Are we focusing on user experience? Are we already looking at customer experience or already putting the human at the center of everything? And so for this topic, maybe let me just... Um, Go to Mo, human experience experts. What's your thought on this? Well, 99% of my work is to help organization in the health and wellness business shift from brand-centric to human-centric. And what I see is uh, there's a, and that's kudos to my previous mentor, Ms. Mrs. Becky Chittister, who launched in the organization where I worked, Wonderman Thompson Health, which was part of WPP, kind of health inertia, right? Because... There's a lot of ambition, but there's not a lot of courage. And what do I mean? We operate in a very compliant organization and we see that it's often focused to the solution, but we're not willing to take that up a notch and look at the organization that is delivering that solution, the culture that is delivering that solution, you know, and how are people rewarded? And if pharma organizations are rewarded on sales and revenue, it might be very hard to redefine what success looks like, right? So uh, we see it in a lot of these, uh, you know, improving lives, improving health and things like that. And I think we already addressed that. I think until it's ingrained in the way the organization is structured to deliver value, I think that's where the real value needs to be. So from my perspective, I think it's a very good evolution. I think the the fact that we're trying to deliver things is interesting, but I don't think we're courageous enough in health and wellness organizations to also take that up a notch in, in how the structure is organized. How is HR within health organization human-centric? How is finance human-centric? You know, how is... So I think it's hopeful, but I think it requires a lot of courage, and I think it requires to balance how do we go about with compliance, because it's still very important. And then lastly, what I know, especially for pharma brands, is that everything has to be 100% scientifically argumented, but there's also the science of human beings. And I think we can be 100% scientific as far as uh, science of human beings, because in the end, everything that you're delivering, a human person has to say yes to that. Right. So how do we integrate the science of yes into organizations and, and, and creating value? So once again, we could go on for a very long time with that, but I think it's really hopeful. And I think we'd, I'd love to reverse engineering, engineer it towards organizations, but I often see that there's a lack of courage to really be frank about that and, and rethink the entire value chain of how we we come to that. I think it's often focused at the end of, of the delivery of services and solutions, but not organizations. So what I'm hearing is that you're saying that there's um, a lot of complexity around compliance and regulations on the one hand. In other, on the other hand, maybe also a little bit of we're still finding out how we need to be doing it. Is that correct? Well, I think there's an ambition. And I think if we, we just focus at the end of the funnel, Right. How do we do deliver solutions? But we don't, we're not really critical of how the organization is engineered to do that and integrate it in the DNA of the organization. It'll still be a very hard effort. I'm more thinking of integrating it across organizations that are, are, are meant to deliver these values. Okay. 
Aditi, when we first touched upon this topic prior to this um, conversation and to this podcast, you said that you already we're doing it for quite a while in, uh, at your previous work and all. Where do you stand on this health-centered design? Well, so I was, the place I worked before, uh, the hospital I had, had a number of innovation arms. I was in the telehealth one, I ran the telehealth one, but we actually had a health design lab. It was run by one of my colleagues and he and a, a woman called Ellen Lupton, who is from New York, they actually wrote a book on health design thinking. And because we had that lab, they would run a lot of research and really look at a running and determining how do you actually create a product that everybody would actually like to use? Patients, clinicians, radiologists, let's say lab, lab technicians, depending on what the product was and the outcome you were looking for, they would create a bunch of, they would create uh, programs to figure out how to do that. So, and it worked really well, right? So it was actually very interesting because it, be, it created a space in a large academic center where generally things don't move quickly. It created a place where things would move quickly and we would test out innovations in different departments. And it was allowing different groups of physicians and departments to become part of an innovative process to try to improve what they were doing. So it was very interesting. And they have a book out, right? So this has been out there. Now, saying that, that is my experience. So because I was there, I know a lot more about it than I would say the general healthcare system. It's not to say that everybody is doing that because, again, it, it, things move slowly. I see a lot of potential for it because it brings in all the stakeholders necessary for real innovation to take place to get their input for real innovation to take place. Yeah, I agree with you. And by the way, I, I have the book at, here at home. It's an amazing book if you quickly want to feel what health design is really all about, health design thinking really is all about. I was going to say that you can see that cartoon picture of me in there. Is there? Yeah, yeah. I did the telemedicine uh, snippet in there. Okay, I'll have a, I'll definitely have a look now. But what you say is also true. I mean, in the fact that within the um, service design thinking and definitely in the human-centered design thinking, the inclusion of multiple stakeholders in a complex environment, that is the most complex thing to be, to manage actually, if you want, if you want to design according to such process. And so I, I believe that that might be the biggest challenge and that might probably be the main reason also why perhaps today in healthcare settings, in my opinion, it might not be always the case. I think in healthcare, and this is something that I always talk about in my keynotes, is that I think we're very much focused on the needs. I think we're very much focused on making sure that we solve a medical need. But sometimes we then don't go far enough to understand what will make this work. What are the expectations towards a certain solution? We sometimes believe, I that's my opinion at least, is that if we solve a medical need, then because people have a medical need, they will comply to that solution, which is definitely not the case. And that's, I believe that's why we need human-centered design. That's why we need to include things like what do they expect in certain moments for a starter or what are their aspirations in life um, to make sure that we, we definitely cap that as well and that the solution is adapted to that reality, to that complex reality. Eugene, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so I, I definitely don't have the expertise to, to go down deeper into this, but your original question was, you know, where are we in healthcare? Are we in user experience, service experience, human centered? You know, let's face it, we've been in quote unquote experience economy for many years now, right? Because people don't want things anymore. They want experiences and the healthcare experience just sucks no matter where. It just sucks, right? And so my answer is yes, yes, and yes. I think depending on, quote unquote, the logo, the company, the payer, you know, everybody's going through that transitional phase of, well, let's do UX, UI, let's do service design. And, you know, if I hear one more time about a patient journey in a pharma company, I don't, I think the pharma companies have spent, I don't even know, I don't even want to put a number on it on, on how many patient journeys have been mapped out. So I think the short, kind of my my key thoughts is again yes yes and yes and at the end of the day we as human beings and that's a little bit you know kind of our, our just a little hint on our your coach logo is actually based on a, a on a japanese kanji hito which is a person and we all need a 
person to lean on. And back to our earlier discussion on self-care, sometimes we need to lean on ourselves. Sometimes we need to understand, you know, what do we need to go through as kind of jobs to be done for ourselves as patients, health consumers. I think we're still in the very, very, very early stages of kind of, let's call it reinventing health and care, health or care, health in a real human-centered, patient-centered way. One other quick thing, and for our clinical and doctors on here, is I think the technologists sometimes forget that doctors are humans too. And so a lot of that have not been taken into consideration in any new novel ideas, technologies, etc. I mean, think about Epic just for one split second, and then probably just as an example... <laughs> So that's kind of my my high level thoughts. Uh, I think we got a long, long way to go, and I'm an optimist. <laughs> Thank you for that, and I, I do agree. I mean, on, to, on on the two things that you mentioned. First of all, I did work on a lot of patient journeys in many different companies, whether it is pharmaceuticals or healthcare organizations. What I do realize, though, is that there has been a lot of money invested into that, but to do it one time. And then they think they're good for the four, five, six years because they know the patient journey. And the reality is, and, and you can see that in consumer world, they invest a lot more into understanding the needs and the expectations or the aspirations of people. And that, that journey, that customer journey in that case, that consumer journey is then updated almost every three, four, five months. And obviously you may say that, I mean, things don't always change that much in healthcare, but I beg to differ because I mean, healthcare is part of a bigger world and that bigger world is changing as well. So the way that people look at it might definitely have an impact on that patient journey. And then the second thing is indeed, uh, and I was actually given a keynote yesterday on that topic, is that uh, you indeed need to have a great focus on the end user of, of a certain solution. But there is somebody who's uh, transmitting that solution, explaining that solution, who, who you might be selling that solution to. And the process of designing that solution, it's very important to include also that stakeholder. And that is exactly the part of the human-centered design as well, to map that complexity. And that is definitely also something which I see lacking in many, many different initiatives. Um, so I can only confirm that. So then, to conclude this segment, uh, let's go to our customer experience experts. What's your thought, Krupa, on human-centered design? And where are we in healthcare? So I'm quite lucky. I've been working in human-centered design for many years now. And here in the UK, within the NHS, human-centered design is, is embedded very, very deeply. So that's NHS Digital. They have a very mature practice. It is still trickling through various other parts of the NHS as well. Now, when I was leading the team of user researchers during the pandemic, there was a huge focus on human-centered design and ensuring that the products and the services we were providing to the public during the pandemic met their needs, but also that they were involved throughout. Now, I do see that there are various levels of maturity um, of human-centered design thinking in the UK. It seems that everybody wants to be doing this now, but there are organizations that don't actually understand who the different stakeholders are and how you need to bring them together. And that's a big thing. It's, it's educating um, an organisation. It means cultural change. It means ways of working change. The ways in which you run proje uh, projects and how you bring people in and how they're involved. And it's a very different form of thinking and there's a lot of education to be done around there. But we have been using it heavily during the pandemic and it was a very, very good example the Be My Eyes app, which is for blind and partially uh, sighted people, how human-centered design helped create products that work for them better. Now, I see it as one part, because then you've got the other parts, you've got the stakeholders, but then you've got other teams. And when I say other teams, I mean teams such as the behavioral science team, you've got your data teams, you've got your market research teams. That ecosystem needs to work together first before you then scale it out to the rest of your organization because the different insight teams need to be talking to each other. So I think it's very good. I'm very excited. I think it requires cultural change within organizations. It requires teams working together, but I think it could be very, very, very successful if it was applied more and more. Yeah, and I think it refers back to what Mo was saying about the complexity. Maybe one question for you, Krupa, is that 
one of the things that I so- sometimes feel is that there is a uncomfortness in a clinical setting, which is used to be dealing with clinical research towards the practice of human-centered uh, design, because human-centered design is very often founded or supported by qualitative research, which is not as solid as clinical research. Do you encounter those kind of ch- challenges as well? Or I think research encounters a challenge like this all the time, qualitative, quantitative. It, it's always going through that. Um, yes, ethics, there's another ethical challenge as well uh, that comes into this. It's always about, you know, you've got to have your allies and you work with them. As I said earlier, it's an education piece. It's about educating the clinicians. What we are seeing is some companies actually going into theatre rooms and you do have researchers going into theatre rooms working with the surgeons during during surgery to help them make their products and services better. So it is there and, and like we were saying earlier, you need, you need to have your clinicians who are on board who can go along this journey. But I think you're always going to have that challenge. Indeed, I think so too. And so with these smart words, we're always going to have that challenge. I'd like to wrap up the Healthy Season podcast for this month. Thank you for listening. If you like this show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Krupa Sutar, Mozuina, and of course, our guest, Eugene Brokovich. My name is Christoph Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. 